Please welcome Miss Anne-Marie Duff. Tea, madame? Yes, please. Right. So you did say you were partial to a cuppa. Yeah. So this is, is your it treat. It's the campest thing we've ever heard. <laughs> Lovely, there we are. Thank you, sir. Vicky? No, I'm, I'm, I'm grand. You're good. Good, team. okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome as ever. Now, one of the great pleasures of theatre going in London over the last 10 or 15 years has been to witness the blossoming of Anne Marie Duff from a young actor of tremendous potential to what I think now is a superb actor, absolutely the peak of her powers. And I think anybody who's seen. <laughs> Her performance in Strange Interlude on this very stage will, won't need convincing of that. And I'm glad to see the Nationals played a lot of part in this progress, really since, I suppose, she played Cordelia to Ian Holmes' famously unclothed Leah, although he kept his kit on in your scenes together, as, as I remember, Anne-Marie. Yeah, no, yeah, there was... <laughs> There was no need for news. Exactly, exactly. And, of course, a wonderful St. Joan, an award-winning performance here at the National. But I'd also like to mention Berenice by Racine, collected stories with Helen Mirren, and playing the lead character in Rattigan's Cause Célèbre at the Old Vic. And as for screen performances, well, she's played Elizabeth I, Margot Fontaine, and John Lennon's mum, which is a sort of interesting trio there. <laughs> And to the outside world, of course, uh, she's fondly known as the long-suffering Fiona in Shameless, which had its last episode recently, and you all went back for a kind of nostalgic reunion. Yeah. So actors often say to me at this point that they've been listening to me reel off those credits, and they think, that sounds very impressive. I wonder who did all of that. <laughs> Do you feel a bit the same, that somehow it wasn't like that? It was much more, it sounds very, you went from this to that and did this and got that and all the rest of it. Is it a bit more random, a bit more chancy than that sounds? Um, it's kind of difficult to articulate in as much as uh, I have had extraordinarily good fortune never to repeat myself. So it's... Um, so I don't feel, I feel so very much like there will have been big, fat, swollen, tasty chapters, you know? So I don't feel like, a, oh, that was my period of playing such and such, uh, uh, certain character types, or that was, you know, so in that way, I, I do feel very connected to it. And I sort of, sounds desperately self-indulgent, but I sort of have had a love affair with every character I've played. So I do feel like, almost like there were, just parts of my growing up as a woman, mm. and, you know, and just discovering stuff about myself and about the universe, you know, so... I'm sorry, I'm so like this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I, I do feel attached to it. I mm. feel viscerally attached to it, uh, 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 just because I feel so passionate about mm. it all, I guess. Because it's, as we were saying, it's 20 years since you left drama school. Yeah. I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> no. How do you enjoy that? And have you been looking back, or, because most actors, don't do that much. They, like, they prefer to think about the next job down the line. But mm. have you been surprised by how it's gone since you left drama school? Yeah, I, I, I'm constantly surprised and thrilled and grateful. Mm -hmm. um, 
And for all of the things I talked about just before, you know, just the riches, the feast I've gorged mm -hmm. on, really, you know, creatively. And, and it wasn't really until we talked about it just then that I realised it was 20 years. Uh, mm. Thanks, Al. <laughs> no, but I, I did, I truly didn't. And of course, this month it is, because I would have graduated from college mm. in 93. So, um, I mean, blimey, how lucky have I been? But in a very old-fashioned way, I mm. guess. You know, I left the Drama Centre and I worked with Mike Alfreds. What an incredible teacher. And David Glass, another incredible teacher. Then went off and worked with shared experience. Brilliant teaching environment. And then I came here and worked with Richard. And, you know, so it was just... I had this space, and I think a lot of young actors don't have it so much now. I was very protected. I got to learn my craft. Mm. And, and I wasn't thrown into the lead in a great big old TV drama or movie. And, and if I screwed up, that's it. The jig's up, mm, you know? Mm. Whereas I got to really sort of watch and, and breathe in other people's craft as well as just trying to work on my own. And I think that's, that's really lucky. And, and I think the theatre provides the, the space to do that. I mean, did you have specific ambitions yeah. or parts you wanted to play when you left drama? I desperately Send wanted to be like... Judy mm -hmm. Dench, right. or mm. or Ellen Terry, or yeah. I didn't have, I didn't want to be, I don't know, I didn't want to be Meryl Streep, you know, I wanted to be here. Mm -hmm. It was very clear to me. I was a hysterically pretentious teenager. <laughs> I mean, imagine that growing up in Hazen Middle East. <laughs> down well so um <laughs> yeah that was that, that was me so tell us about strange interlude when the uh, when the offer came through had you heard of the play did you know anything about it or who do you know neil anything about him his work his life i never worked on an o'neill play mm. before but obviously i knew a great deal about him mm. uh, i'd never heard of strange interlude never mind not having read it or seen it I got sent this enormous script Quite. a couple of years ago. Yes. I just had my little boy, and I was in no place to make a decision about... I was just, oh, my God, this is just an extraordinary, you know, extraordinary panorama. And um, I... Then it was sort of put on the back burner, I think, the, the scheduling here in this building. They weren't sure when they were going to do it, and da-da-da-da. So I read it and then received the cut version later <laughs> and, uh, and came and met Simon. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of how it happened. But I did think it was like nothing I'd read before and also like no other Eugene O'Neill play I'd, re I'd read before. And, um, and I, I remember bumping into an actress called Liz White, who some of you probably all know from Port and other things. Um, in the loo here, just before I met Simon, I said, oh, my God, I'm meeting Simon Godwin for this bonkers play. And she went, oh, it's O'Neill. I said, well, she said, you'll never stop loving it. Mm. And, I, and that's true. Because she was in the company that came from Northampton to do the uh, uh, O'Neill play. Yeah. And uh, that's right, a couple of O'Neill plays. Yeah. Um, now, you say five hours, it's been reduced to sort of three and a half hours, Ooh, Maybe a bit less, actually. What's, what's gone from the... Anything that you regret losing in the... The sort of reduction, the revision. Well, I mean, of the it's play. also beautiful. You can always say fight for lines, but actually, you have to serve the story, the chronology mm -hmm. of the story, and hold your audience and keep them interested. And there were an awful lot, you know, that the play is. I don't know if anybody's seen the play, but the play sort of exists in two dimensions. One is within your noggin, so we are constantly sharing our thoughts 
with the audience as well as having a dialogue. Mm. So the audience is party subtext, secrets, everything. And uh, there were an awful lot more thoughts. So they went. Yes. And there was a, quite a bit of repetition, which I think O'Neill does on purpose often. Yes, quite. He never says, you know, uses one word when ten will do. Yeah. So, uh, so that went to, and you know, just. How about that device of the aside, in a way? Mm. Is, it, is it tricky to get your head round as an actor, or going through the fourth wall, are you comfortable doing that? At the beginning, it was completely terrifying, at the beginning of rehearsals, because mm. uh, we weren't sure how we were going to do it. Was it going to be something that was seemed internalised, as if speaking to ourselves in a mirror, absolutely connecting with somebody? And the grand discovery was that the more inclusive we were, the more interesting it was, the more titillating and sexy and exciting, and the more like reading somebody's diary. Or... And we thought about uh, mediums where it works, you know, Woody Allen's movies, it's always very funny, and we love it. You know, and Annie Hall, when the two of them are, are sort of being uncomfortable with each other, but we know what they're thinking, and, and, in, lots, and in reading novels, and, you know, so... Now it's great fun, of course, we all love it. And Simon was very strict in the rehearsal mm. room and made us all connect with the stage management and anyone else who was in the rehearsal space watching. And some people were quite cowardly about that. Charlie always used to look up, Charlie Edwards would look up that day. And then he eventually looked down, he won't mind me telling you that. And, um, and, and Simon hilariously was the worst person to have eye contact with because he'd be so enthusiastic in listening <laughs> that he'd put you off and you'd forget your lines. But, um, but, yeah. I, I, there can't be many roles that, you, that you're required to age 25 years, in effect, aren't you, in this? Does that, does that pose particular problems in terms of, I don't know, wigs and makeup and costume and all the sort of outside things? Not really, as, in comparison with doing Elizabeth first, mm -hmm. where I had to age 60 years. You yes. know, that, was, that was a pain in the bum, but this, this mm -hmm. is quite good fun. Uh, also, it's odd. It's not something one has to think about desperately because the text kind of does it for you. Mm. That sounds a bit of a cop-out, but it isn't really. And, and for actually the biggest, the largest, um, you know, section of the play, Nina is in the prime of her life from her 20s mm. into her 30s. And then there's a sort of leap. And it's a kind of a poetic leap as well, because although Nina's only a few years older than me at the end of the play, she thinks she's supposed to be 46, we worked out. It's as if she's 60, maybe more. You know, it's a sort of poetic decision I think O'Neill makes, that she's kind of, you know, uh, exhausted. And, um, and so it, doesn't, it just doesn't feel... One hasn't had to make... I suppose there's a tempo adjustment, there are things, maybe perhaps vocally slightly, but mm -hmm. nothing major. Nothing major. I mean, what do you think O'Neill thinks of Nina? Uh, the chap in one of the programme articles talked about him being kind of repelled and fascinated at the same time by her, by the sort of, um, I suppose you'd say, what's the word, rebellious sexual power of women mm -hmm. that can undermine uh, man, cow, men, anyone, certainly in this play does. Would you agree with that? I, mean, I didn't get that sense so much. I think he rather falls, fallen for her, fallen in love with her, uh, is one of her admirers too. I think it's, um, it's quite an adjustment for us to think of Nina 
for us, we're a 21st century audience, post-Freud, post-everything. So we totally understand the notion of perforated boundaries, of people behaving sexually in a way that may be some desperate attempt to fulfill something, to, to fill an emptiness, to discover oneself, to all of those things. Um, but this, I don't think, had been defined or articulated in any great detail at that time. So I suspect it's about creative interpretation mm -hmm. too. And I suspect our production is probably warmer towards her as a result of yes. having all of that than previously. Um, I didn't feel that O'Neill... I mean, God knows, there are all kinds of labels thrown at O'Neill in terms of his relationship with women, and quite rightly, but I don't feel that there's a harshness in his writing about her. Because all of the characters are a bit fucked up and mm -hmm. a bit selfish and a bit, as we were saying earlier, mm -hmm. self-serving. And, and so they're all just kind of bristling against each other, whatever that means for them, you know. So it feels more of an ensemble sort of take on it, really. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think he admires her. I think. Do you think that she's hemmed in by society, that she's limited by society's mores? Well, of course, she's a woman at that time. Yes. So it goes without saying, mm. you know, and... And do you think O'Neill sympathises with her, her predicament? Possibly. I, I do f feel like there's a lot of him in her, in that strange behaviour in terms of his emotional unavailability, mm -hmm. and yet sort of clinging like a sort of ivy around a tree of people, you know, and... But I, I do, so I do feel that there, there is an affinity. Um, I, I love her, and I think, like you say, in some weird way, so does he. I think she's harder to love as she gets older, and I've talked about this before, but I, you know, when one is in one's 20s and a bit complicated, oh, it's very sexy, it's very exciting, it's interesting, and it's, oh, especially in a woman. Mm. Then suddenly one is in one's 30s. Okay, they're a little bit of hard work, but they're still kind of sexy and interesting. Then when one's in one's 40s, oh, Jesus God, there's something wrong with this woman. And she's difficult to be around, and everything begins to calcify and become more bitter and more unfulfilled and more unresolved. And I think that... Um, I think that's what O'Neill does brilliantly, actually, without making her a harridan no. or a sort of archetype, you know, I think he does that beautifully and so it's easy to play. I think we feel that she's capable of more than she's been allowed to do by circumstance and by she's very society's bright, rules, yeah. yes. Um, I mean, that's what I And also, away. and I must stress this, her sexual mm. behaviour is born out of grief. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, she loses her first love before consummation. Mm. Which happened to a lot of women, actually, First World War and Second yes, World War. Yes, And um, so, therefore, you know, what do you equate with, you know, sex becomes a, to do with loss, to do with being unresolved, to do with, you know, if you've never experienced mm. the touch, the first touch, you're looking for it all, all times and you're trying to... You're trying to answer that question for yourself and I think I think that 
the, that, that, that's in the play very clearly. Do you, is she hard to play? Do you feel that you, there's so much to her that it's difficult to encompass all her qualities, all her characteristics in one, on one evening or one matinee? Or do you, do you feel that you've got sort of the grasp of her, the feel of her? Well, I should be so lucky, you know. Mm. I get to play all the instruments yeah. in the orchestra. I, I'm lucky. I'm a lucky yeah. duck, you know. I can't grumble. Mm. And I come to the restaurant starving. I make sure I'm hungry enough to do it every right. night, to, to taste everything. And, yeah. and I'm really lucky. You have to remember that as an actor. I'm mm. not going, excuse me, Gov. Mm. I'm, I'm getting to be 20 and heartbroken. Mm. I'm getting to be adulterous in my 30s. I'm getting to be, you know, so I'm lucky. Mm. Well, we're lucky watching you being lucky too, <laughs> if, I may, if I may say so. Now, I was very struck. It must have been, I think it was the sort of, um, ambiance of the of the piece, um, and it was something about the I think the wig you wear in the final act. That it's very glamorous, ladies. Exactly, but I would. Has everyone ever said how much you resemble Betty Davis? Yes, I have actually. Well, because it started me thinking. I can't get the thought out of my mind, and I just wondered. Now she was she was a tremendous. How much do you know about her? Or are you an admirer of her? Would you? Yeah. Would you like to have been a sort of movie goddess during the, the golden <laughs> years of Hollywood. I don't think I really got the looks of me a goddess, but, uh, yeah. Well, you know, we were saying, I'm talking about Mildred Pierce, and, mm -hmm. you know, those women were something in those movies. They were something. They weren't just the wife, the mom, the this, the that. They were the compass points, and mm. they were shattered and interesting, and, yeah. How fabulous. Yes, I think you would, uh, I mean, if only you'd been born another hundred years yeah. earlier or something. <laughs> Your timing is a bit awry there, but it just it struck me that, yes, I'd like to see you, as you say, Joan Crawford was Mildred Pierce, of course, but any of the, the old acquaintance, those great Warner Brothers mm. melodramas that she made. Uh, if anyone ever wants to remake them, you know, you should be at the head of the queue for them. Yeah, that'd be right. <laughs> I see that happening. Well, let's go back to the beginning, as they say. And you grew up in West London. Yeah. Uh, your parents were Irish immigrants. Your dad was a painter and decorator. Your mum worked in a shoe shop. Were you an only child? I don't know, did you have siblings? Or I have a brother, You yes. have a brother. But did you play a lot in your own imagination as a kid? Yeah, I did. I mm. wasn't a shuffleball change kid. I didn't go to dance classes or do any of that stuff. Um, mm. I read an awful lot mm. and uh, was quite shy and, and just kind of went to youth theatre because my best pal was going to a yeah. youth theatre. And that's how it happened, mm. really. And then kind of just unlocked stuff. You know the way that... Well, I mean, it's an awful comparison, but you know the way alcoholics say when they have a drink, they go, oh, now I, now I get it. That's kind of what I yeah. felt like. So oh, I understand everything now. Now everything makes sense to me. Right. And so I started reading plays. And I didn't go to the theatre very much because it wasn't there for me, financially or locally, really. So the school didn't take you to... We came here a couple of times, and I saw Daniel Day-Lewis play Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite nice. <laughs> and um, and uh, I saw Miranda Richardson here, mm -hmm. and, you know. So that was very cool, um, but it wasn't, you know, if you're working class in this country, mm. theatre isn't part of your life. Mm. Sad to say, it isn't. Uh, but I do come from an Irish family who tell stories and sing and do all of that old stuff. 
and so I was lucky in that way. So when did the idea strike you that you could make a living doing this stuff? Um, of course, I never thought about money because one doesn't when one's in one's mm. teens, but I, uh, I suppose it would have been around that time, mid-teens. I became obnoxiously determined. Yeah. I think I had to be uh, because the whole world was telling me I shouldn't be and it was the height of the Thatcherite 80s mm. and all my pals who were great artists or singers or had any kind of creative ambition suddenly wanted to work at Barclays. And I didn't understand it at mm. all. I thought I was confused and upset. And, and so just became even more, I suppose, blinkered and, and just read Peter Brook and did all that and auditioned for drama school. And you got into the drama centre. Yeah. Uh, which is famously, you know, they always say that it's a sort of <laughs> terrifying place where they it, it ruthlessly tear you apart to assemble you again. Um, was, was this your experience? Was it really kind of, were you put through the mill, mm. through the mincer? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a different school now, but yeah. then it certainly was. Um, mm. it, uh, but I was 19 and terribly masochistic and I loved it. Right, because they all sound a bit forbidding, these the guys, the Yats and Christopher Fetters and not the rest mm. of them, rather austere mm. and... Uh, but it's sort of, you know, we lo there's nothing more pretentious than a young person and the idea mm. that you're in a conservatoire and that you're going to change the face of British theatre, mm. I mean, come on, of course you're not, but it's great at the time. Yes. <laughs> when you're in your leotards, you love it. <laughs> I've always found with Drama Centre, I think I said this before, interviewing them, they're always... Drama Centre graduates, highly articulate, they can analyse what they do, they can talk very in interestingly and uh, eruditely about the characters and things. Was this part of the, the Drama Centre training then? Well, uh, I think the, their objective was to make you as resourceful and capable as possible, so that if you didn't have the kind of director who was interested in having that dialogue. And there are some who aren't mm. really interested in your process at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd be able to get on and do the job. Mm -hmm. and, and that's quite nice, empowering feeling. But you, you got a job more or less right away. Yeah. What, what was your first job? It was with Mike Alvarez and David Glass. Right. Uh, we did a production of uh, Les Enfants du Paradis. Ah. And mm. uh, I had about four lines in it. And it was great. And were there some of the best four lines in the play, or...? No. <laughs> but straight off the back of that, then, Mike offered me the lead in his next play. Blimey. Yeah. So there you were, you know, already... Did you feel, I mean, does the Drama Centre training equip you to sort of really get to grips with the work right away? Were you, were, did you feel ready for that kind of challenge at that stage of your career? Uh, I mean, I have to think back, mm. but... Uh... I had the arrogance of youth, you know, that sort of weird... Well, you just... And it's your right and your duty, as O'Neill would say, to feel invincible mm -hmm. in your early 20s. And I did, I guess, in that way. I wanted it so much, Al. I wanted it so much. And I think that's the point. You have to want it so bad. Yes. And I don't mean to be famous. I mean to be in it and be inside a character. You have to want it so mm. much, and I did. So you always, you always felt comfortable within a, a setting of a, a company rehearsing and mm. performing. You've, you feel immediately at home there. Yes, you do. You do. I think uh, there's nothing nicer than a rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. 
And really, I can't think you've been out of work for really that long. You may have had your periods, but they haven't been... <laughs> have you had many times I, I when just, the phone hasn't rung? I and... did have a quite a long period of unemployment after I played Elizabeth I for Oh, really? And then somebody said, oh, so did Glenda Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, it's not so bad then. Yes, yeah, quite. And Glenda, of course, she she played Nina as I well. Know, I know. Much to you. <laughs> Everyone tells you that they yeah. saw that production, oh, which yeah. must please you no end. <laughs> they do say, "Oh, are you Glenda?" That's what they say. <laughs> well, she's not a bad model. No, exactly. Follow, I should be really. so. Yeah. So, looking back through your uh, career, are there things that are there particular jobs that stand out that you found particularly valuable or rewarding or uh, there are lots, mm. so it's quite difficult to... Obviously, St Joan was extraordinary yes. for me, on a creative level. I learned so much on that play, I can't Be tell you. Because I, I should explain to the ladies and gentlemen, the ca or the Blue Room, which is called the, the Canteen at the National, I don't know when it was re re uh, uh, renamed the Blue Room, I suppose a bit of a makeover. There are photographs on the wall, and I was just having my lunchtime sandwich, and there's a shot of Anne-Marie in rehearsal for St Joan, presumably, and there's chaps who are their back to you, and you're caught... You're sort of, I think, you're concentrating. There's a sort of uh, expression of intense concentration, as if, I don't know whether you're thinking, how the hell do I get out of this, or what am I doing, or where is it now? But you certainly, you're kind of almost not quite in the photograph. Um, can you remember that particular moment? We had a photographer on St. Joan who was a sort of rock and roll photographer. <laughs> so all the photographs <laughs> are sort of in between moments. So people are always a bit, or a bit. <laughs> a bit. Which makes it look very cool. <laughs> but, you know, usually rehearsal photographs are like, <laughs> like that. So um, that's what it was. <laughs> Which always makes me laugh. When I was working at Donmar last year, Josie Rourke and the cast of Berenice had this plan that they were going to sneak in, break into the National Theatre canteen and replace the picture <laughs> with something much more flattering. <laughs> well, there is there's a sort of look of determination in your eye. <laughs> that's one way that you of putting it. <laughs> which you, can, you think, you know, that's, so Joan was just sort of, you know, wondered, planning how to uh, raise the siege of Orléans or something or how to... Maybe to I was. crown the Dauphin <laughs> or something. But that was, that was very much a turning point for you playing St. Joan, was uh, it? It was inside. Mm -hmm. um, I remember so clearly getting the phone call. Uh, I was, we used to have a tiny flat in Finsbury Park, uh, which the papers loved writing about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we had this tiny flat in Finsbury Park and I got a phone call and I sat down on the sofa and... And my agent said, you know, the National have been on the phone and they'd like you to play St. Joan. I could almost cry talking about it now, actually. And, and I sat down because I, I remember feeling like I was 14 and everything had happened that I'd ever dreamed of. Everything had happened. And so I don't know whether it was a conscious decision or not, but I remember going, oh, this, I have to always, always remember this moment and take it into every day of rehearsal. 
in every performance of St. Joan, and I really did. I really did. Mm. I remember standing backstage every night, and I used to stand, and I used to... So I had bare feet, and I'd sort of go, oh, my feet are in mud. My feet, I could feel everything. And I remember thinking, this is why you're a storyteller. This is the point of being a storyteller for a living. It doesn't matter if people recognise you on the street. It doesn't matter if you're hot, you're cool, you're whatever. The fact that you can feel the soil, the French soil on your feet, that's the point of it. And I... And I loved it, mm. and I learnt that that joy that is, has nothing to do with any of the satellites or the bullshit that surrounds it all, mm -hmm. and that's why you want to do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that's... Uh, so in that way, and I learnt how to break my heart, but leave it in the theatre and go home and be happy. Well, this interlude, I don't know if it's been a strange interlude, it's been an extremely enjoyable interlude, and I think the only word I can use to describe it, of course, is extraordinary. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the extraordinary Anne-Marie Duff.